0: Have a dream that one day yes. this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed.
1: Think of the most famous political speeches and quotations you know.
0: Together let us explore the stars, conquer the desert, eradicate disease.
1: What do they have in common?
0: At times, history and faith meet at a single time, in a single place, to shape a turning point in man's unending search for freedom.
1: A belief in, and a promise of, progress. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace,
0: to foster progress in human achievement and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations.
1: But what if progress isn't real? What if the long arc of history doesn't bend toward justice? Today, we're asking that question more and more because it seems like we're in the middle of a big setback. The health of democracy around the world and peace in Europe, two of our greatest markers of progress from the horrors of the past, each seemed to be fading away. Today we're joined by Matthew Slavok, professor of political science at Denizen and author of A Road to Nowhere, the idea of progress and its critics. And he's joined us to talk all about progress. What can we learn from thinkers and novelists from many times and places about it? Is it real? And what's the point of participating in politics if it isn't? Stay tuned for all this and more on today's Focus interview by Spectacles.
2: Yeah, so thank you very much, uh, Professor Slayback, for joining us today. I'm really excited to get started. Um, so let's just jump in uh, by getting a, a working definition of progress for our listeners. And I, I think that's actually really important because the the word progress or symbols variously associated with progress, as you note in the book, are ubiquitous in American political discourse, even if their precise meaning isn't actually that clear. Uh, And in particular, I would say notions of progress are associated with the modern political left uh, and to a lesser but not insignificant extent with liberals. Uh, but your tracing of the intellectual history suggests pretty clearly that that was not necessarily always the case. Progress has a more expansive and maybe even perhaps to the average American disturbing history as an idea, one that makes it somewhat difficult to pin down exactly what it is. Now, I would say, candidly, I usually identify myself as some kind of a progressive. But I guess I should ask myself more often and maybe you know, the general public what we mean by that. Um, in your view and the view of your book, how do you define progress and what exactly do its proponents want to progress towards?
0: Sure. So uh, one of the things that I would note is that, and this, this is a criticism that, that I received from some reviewers of the book, is that I don't really offer my own definition of progress there. Instead, mm-hmm. I, I turn to a variety of authors living in different times and different cultural contexts and look at how they understood progress but i think as as kind of a working definition of what the term means we're looking at improvement of whatever sort an improvement that is not just temporary but that is lasting so mm-hmm. for some authors or for some individuals it doesn't have to be authors it could it could be people um you know uh, of a different background who, who are thinking about the the future and, and thinking about change um progress would mean perhaps um improvement in material well-being um so generation after generation uh you know wealth accumulation um could could be seen as a type of progress Um, for others uh they're gonna say well no that's that's not the sole type of uh improvement that that we can expect you know we we can think in terms of moral improvement or political advances and again moral improvements or political advances that are not just temporary. So not just a regime change or a change from one bad political party or uh, politician to a better party and politician, but more lasting um, substantive uh, improvements over time. Um, Others are going to say that that it's not merely material well-being or political or moral progress, but we can see even... Advances and things that others are going to consider purely um, subjective fields like like the arts or aesthetics. Some are going to uh-huh. say nope. Even even that is something where we can expect uh, lasting positive uh, I- advances there. So that's kind of a, a working definition um, of how to think about progress is is uh, change, change for the better, and change that is going to be um mostly mostly permanent so there there might be some Mm -hmm. dips there might be some reversals but those reversals and dips would be seen as temporary um with the expectation that that further improvements would be added on in the future so I'll, i'll stop there with kind of a right you know rudimentary definition
2: No, I think that's very helpful.
1: And I think that's interesting you point out how you try to focus on what do these writers, what are these thinkers, what are these philosophers have to say on this without opining a lot uh, yourself about what progress is or what it ought to be or or this or that. Um, And I have a question sort of in that vein, because as you discuss many different thinkers, uh, you include some who wrote novels. Um, like Fyodor Dostoevsky, who you discussed briefly, and Henry Adams, who gets uh, basically a chapter. Um, when talking about Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov or Adams's Democracy or other novels, uh, there's a brief debate that seems to go on in the book about how we can properly or correctly derive the author's ideas from their books. That is, should we think of Dostoevsky as revealing his own opinion through Ivan or Alyosha or neither? And is Adams recounting his own experience through the depiction of Mrs. Lee? What's more, you talk of certain thinkers encountering the ideas of others and feeling a sort of kinship with them. So combining these two sort of threads in your book, I'm curious, um, not so much about uh, the book, but about you. Is there any one of these thinkers in the book with whom you especially identify? I'm just sort of curious to get to know you and in, in the way you, you think about things and look at things. If there's any of these these people you feel a kinship with?
0: Uh, so the f- first of the, the writers who I talk about uh, in, in the book in any great length is Arthur Schopenhauer. And Schopenhauer is someone mm-hmm. who I encountered, I think my sophomore year of of college and is someone who's stuck with me, um, since then. So if I have a particular kinship with anyone, uh, in, in the book, you know, there, there there's obviously some writers that I like more than, than others there, but (laughs) Schopenhauer is going to be one who sticks out for me, uh, for not just the ideas, but how he expresses them. Uh, you know, he's, he's a deep philosophical thinker, and yet he expresses himself uh, with a sort of lucidity uh, mm-hmm. and straightforwardness that is you know, lacking in a lot of academic philosophy. So he makes his writing, even though he's talking about you know some, some really deep ideas in ethics and metaphysics and, and aesthetics uh, and, mm-hmm. and other things. He makes his ideas understandable and, and readable, and and one of the yeah. things that he does, you know he takes pot shots and makes personal attacks against one of his co- contemporaries, against uh, Georg Hegel for <laughs> not being straightforward, not being right. intelligible to mm. um the average person. So it's clear schopenhauer had had an interest in in making his ideas things that could be received and actually right. um understood by by people so that that's someone who i appreciate uh and that's that's actually someone who multiple of the authors the other authors in the book that i um talk about were, were right. also appreciative of schopenhauer yeah. leo tolstoy you mentioned authors that yeah. or novelists that i write about um tolstoy right. is um a, a chapter of his own basically tolstoy um and enjoyed schopenhauer as well so
1: speaking of sort of his writing and, and the criticism he gives of hegel he, he really was quite a critic there were some pretty funny um quotations you had from him of him lambasting other people he was he sounds i have not really spent any time with schopenhauer in fact i knew almost nothing about him but his name before i read your book so um but he was a he's clearly a, a witty and uh, a well spoken person that's certainly something yeah. that I got and
0: and and he he is and that's that's a strange thing too I mean he's he's the most famous philosophical pessimist and it's undeniable mm-hmm. that that's what his position is and he, mm-hmm. he is you know clear in stating that that's his position pessimism and you know so you're expecting the the reading or, or his writing to be really dark and and yet <laughs> it's not all the time yeah. he's, he's f- funny like he yeah he he has some some asides there that are just you know atypical for you know s- standard um philosophy texts
1: right mm,
2: right well we'll have to take it. I, I also don't have a ton of familiarity with schopenhauer but I, I'm, I'm interested now um i wanted to ask a, a question um about you know again how we sort of associate progress with the political left and maybe also with liberals and i think in, in both of those factions democracy democracy is seen as essential maybe even absolutely essential to securing progress but tracing the intellectual history um, it seems like you find some thinkers think of progress and democracy as being necessarily intertwined uh, kant from that same chapter on german philosophy Has a conception of progress as peace, for example, and it relies on the idea that democracies are less likely to go to war, and so progress is intimately bound up in the spread of democracy. I think it's also you can tell in in Kant's ethical system there's a relationship between progress and and democracy, and you also interpret the American founders as believers in the ideal of of progress, which is not uncontested, but that's how you interpret that, and I think that there's that's fair, Um, and that the democratic republic they established was an instrument for achieving that progress. But many other progressives you discuss weren't necessarily fans of democracy. In Hegel, for example, the state is the instrument of progress rather than, you know, some specific iteration of it that's democratic. The Slavophiles, as you discuss them, conceived of progress primarily through religion rather than through democracy. You discuss Soviet communism less in your book, but they certainly believed that history had a direction and that totalitarianism was necessary, even if only theoretically temporarily in pursuit of that goal. So I'm curious for you, what, if anything, is the relationship between democracy as a form of government and our notions of progress? Why would they be tied together for certain thinkers under certain conditions, um, but maybe not for others? And to touch on the founders, is belief in progress essential for the survival of democracy or not?
0: Sure. Okay. So there's a lot of threads to go down. Yes. There. Yes. <laughs> um, Start so wherever let, you like. Let's let's try to go down some of them so you're right um some of the the authors uh that i discuss in the book uh do have favorable leanings towards democracy and those those tend to be primarily uh, the american thinkers who, who i discuss in the book uh, the thinkers in the other contexts and again the, the book focuses more specifically, on critics of of the idea of progress mm-hmm. than than advocates there. And part of the reason for the the critique of progress, uh, if we're looking to Russia or if we're looking to Germany with um, Schopenhauer there, is that you mentioned Kant there. Schopenhauer sees. Kant and Kant's student and um, uh, eventual rival, Johann Herder, they have optimistic philosophies of history, mm-hmm. um, positing improvement over time that's going to be lasting. Schopenhauer warns that these optimistic theories that kind of are predicting and telling people to expect better from the future the result of those sorts of philosophies is if better doesn't actually come about then people are going to demand some sort of radical change um, to deliver the progress the improvement that they were promised there. Mm-hmm. So neither Kant nor Herder was a statist, but their successors Johann Fichte and 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 Hegel are statists there, um, who see a, a foundational, fundamental role for the state to play in bringing about that pro- promised improvement, um, that mm-hmm. promised development. There, it's not just going to be natural, natural or inev- inevitable change right. for the better. It's going to be some entity in the form of the um, political, you know, sphere that is mm-hmm. delivering progress or improvement there. Okay, so that's that's where the kind of a Schopenhauer, Schopenhauerian critique com- comes in that he <laughs> predicts that telling people that improvement is supposed to happen people are going to get antsy if it doesn't right, actually mm-hmm. come about and who who are they going to turn to they're going to turn to political leaders or or parties who say here you know give us authority right. we'll bring about that improved material well-being we'll we'll build the railroads we'll we'll make you wealthier um, we'll you know decrease crime we'll in, increase morality uh, Golden age, whatever it will come right. about, if if you trust in us, um, right? For Tolstoy in in Russia, you know he has similar um, but not totally uh, identical concerns to to Schopenhauer in that he sees uh, the potential of this rhetoric of progress to be abused um, with political authorities justifying any of their endeavors in the names uh in the name of progress there so he he looks to the west and it's um colonial advances around the world and he says you know Mm -hmm. a a lot of the colonial movements a lot of the empire building those whether it's frenchmen or englishmen or or the dutch or the portuguese or spanish um, in going to different parts of the world they justify their actions and, um, you know, right. uh, as civilizing missions. Uh, here we are to bring about progress to you backwards behind peoples who need it
1: mm-hmm. there.
0: And so Tolstoy has, has this fear of, of the rhetoric of, of progress being used and, and abused for those su- sorts of situations there. So both Schopenhauer and Tolstoy. Um, are worried about statism and statism of a particular sort that's that's not necessarily or or even at all democratic there Mm -hmm. and so the the link between ideas of progress and democracy definitely isn't necessarily a firm and total one where is there a link between this this vision of of progress and and democracy well it is in the u.s and i think it's not accidental that you see it uh in the u.s the u.s as a young country and you know the u.s has this reputation Mm -hmm. as the most optimistic country on earth and i would say in the u.s that sort of image has been true not not just of the left, but of the right as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Ronald Reagan and his question of, of voters when he was challenging Jimmy Carter was, are you better off than you were four years ago, was what Reagan asked. And if you think about right. that, you know, that implies that people, voters should expect every four years, if not every year, to see their lives improve. Uh, and then right. when Reagan as president was running for re-election, his campaign theme was it's morning in America, um, presenting this sunny, optimistic, uh, mm-hmm. vision for, for the future. So I'd say both left and right have, have, uh, run on this optimistic vision, but that's not surprising for the U S as a young country. Uh, you talk about the, uh, you know, my, my invocation of the founders, but especially, uh, beyond the founders uh, in the the later 18th uh, century and then into the 19th century american historians talk about um democracy and progress together well right that young country that that young us um you, you know you wouldn't expect writers or, or authors to say ah. Oh, Damn it, we're going to hell right now. Like the mm-hmm. the project has just gotten started there, so <laughs> yeah. of course you know the, the vision is going to be well. Think, things can only get get better from from here on out, and that's that's what a lot right. of the historians paint this you know rosy vision of the American founding as this birth of a new moment that is going to lead to all sorts of um, advances. The the break um, from from England being you know just the start of further improvement right there
2: yeah, actually, I really like that because it's it's both a sort of odd contingency of history, right? That it happens to be at the moment that you know the American Republic is founded, that you get this idea of progress that seems to stick with, um, I guess, Western liberal democracies for for some period of time, maybe just the United States, certainly the United States, other countries as well. Um, but it's also perhaps not so contingent because of the you know the newness of what of the thing that they had of the, that they had established. Um, so um, it's an interesting historical question for sure.
1: Yeah, and it's funny that you reference Reagan's Are You Better Off Than You Were Four Years Ago because Harry just this last weekend wrote an essay about progress and democracy and referenced that as sort of a set piece for the discussion. And I think it is, it is very illustrative of that American optimism and that expectation of progress. Right. I have uh, one thing about... Uh, one other thing about these thinkers in particular, um, and like I said... I, I can't say I knew really anything about many of them. I knew some of them, but I don't want listeners to get intimidated when I mention some of them because you know we're in this together. <laughs> but I want to pick up on the nationalism thread here, looking at two of the thinkers you present. And I think this ties really well into the, the question of where progressive thought leads, which you cite as a concern for many of the critics. And in the case of Hegel... You seem to argue that his philosophy, or you seem to present Schopenhauer as arguing, maybe, that his philosophy, Hegel's philosophy of civilizational progress, in some ways laid a foundation for the devastating German nationalism of the 20th century. I mean, that's intuitive enough. If you believe in progress and you think of your civilized way of life as proof of that, then you'll probably end up pretty nationalistic. But... On the flip side, I see a similar dynamic of a progressivism to nationalism pipeline, if you will, with Danilevsky, who was quite critical of his own country, uh, Russia. But his belief in progress still fed a nationalism despite this criticism, because why wouldn't you want your country to man up, as Danilevsky would put it, and progress to greatness? That too is a sort of nationalism. So my question, really is this should we be cautious about progress for its apparent relationship to nationalism and is a belief in progress perhaps in some ways
0: dangerous um so a couple ways of thinking about that and, and considering that question so the the link between nationalism and the state and progress so it's not just hegel um who's part of the the story in germany Mm -hmm. there's also johann fichte to to um consider Mm -hmm. there so with hegel we have prioritizing of the state uh, and that's that's important there and it happens to be his own state it happens to be prussia that that he praises there so that's or, you know, form of, um, patriotism or, or nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, before Hegel there, there's Johann Fichte, uh, addressing Germans in, um, a a series of of talks that he gave, um, called addresses to the German nation, where he was trying to rally support to push back push against uh, napoleon who was making mm. inroads into german-speaking uh europe mm-hmm. um and that that was at a time before germany was germany it was a bunch of city states it was hanover and saxony and bavaria and prussia right. and a bunch of mm-hmm. smaller ones that you know we we don't rem- remember today and <laughs> and fichte fichte you know says quite clearly that he's addressing german speakers and he offers this vision of the German nation as ethnic Germans. Well, that's not, of course, the only way of thinking about the nation. You know, if, if we're all Americans, we have a civic conception of the nation, not the ethnic. But Fichte mm-hmm. gives the Germans an ethnic depiction of the nation. When, and we can see how that is going to play out. There. if What does it mean to be German? It means to speak German, to be ethnic, mm-hmm. ethnically German. Well, what does that mean for, um, you know, in, in the mid 20th century? What's that going to mean to, to Yiddish speakers or Polish speakers or, um, you know, who, whoever else there? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's going to be, um, to understate, a big problem for, for those groups mm-hmm. there. So it's it's a yeah. combination of Fichte's portrayal of nationalism and Hegel's um vision of the state uh and mm-hmm. together both of them view the the growth of of a united germany um as as kind of being uh important factors in the bringing about of progress and so that right. I, th- I think is dangerous you don't want to call either of them responsible for hitler i don't think i mean they don't call for violent national or violent sure. you know extermination against minorities and 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 the right. German uh, lands, but set something uh, in, into motion. There does the idea of progress have to lead towards nationalism as such or violent nationalism? No. Uh, you mentioned you know the the Soviet example. Um, Soviet example is not totally nationalism as as such it's the rhetoric of overcoming class divisions not mm-hmm. um, racial um you know difference there um so it, you know the the soviet experiment wasn't an entirely a, a nationalist project there's mm-hmm. economic in focus but what it had in common with you know the the nazi uh experiment there was was the large uh, role that the state had to play uh, and and political party so in the one case the the nazis in the other case the communist party uh, and its leaders saying you you hand over power power to us we will bring about those better days um, for mm-hmm. you mm-hmm
2: right that's an interesting point i'm just thinking about um in terms of the capacity of notions of progress on on across the, the three big ideologies um liberalism fascism and communism the three big 20th century ideologies which i think in their own ways uh, maybe you could associate liberalism with the colonial project um and then fascism and communism obviously have their body counts um uh so it's interesting right and the, and all have that 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 relationship to progress which even as those ideologies are are in conflict with one another um uh, all have within that relationship to progress potentially there's 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 a space or a role for extraordinary violence
1: um to play yeah and i i just have looking at russia not the soviet union but uh contemporary russia and nationalism i think that this is an important thread to pick up on Uh, because clearly Russian nationalism is alive and well, even if it isn't amongst the public. Now, maybe it is, maybe the opinion polls aren't reliable, whatever, but regardless, it certainly is alive and well amongst leadership, uh, to the extent that it is having a visible effect today with the invasion of Ukraine. So it's certainly relevant to talk about Russian nationalism, but Russian politics is also one of your areas of expertise. And it's, so I I, I wanted to bring it up here at least once, um, one thing that you talk about as having some effect on russian thought and philosophy with the with the thinkers that you discuss is russia's peculiar position vis-a-vis europe it sits sort of on the periphery and it's sort of long been torn between westernizers and slavophiles who you've mentioned briefly but besides the geographic situation i was also struck by the similarity between Tolstoy's rejection of progress and Putin's, strangely enough. Tolstoy insists on fate over free will as the determinant of our lives, and this is just what Putin said about the invasion of Ukraine, that it was fated to be and it had to happen, and that the Russian people had to be reunited in this way, that it was out of his control. Do you think that there continues to be any sort of, let's say, contiguous String of Russian th- thought that you can trace all the way back to you talk about Nicholas the uh, First and and Tolstoy and and Dostoevsky and all these people all the way back to there. Do you think that there's this sort of contiguous thread of Russian thought that we can trace that continues to have an impact or an effect on Russian thought and opinion and philosophy today, or? Is that perhaps too much of an essentialist view to take as if there's some sort of deeply embedded Russian uh, sort of intrinsic character?
0: Yeah, no, I I don't think it's too essentialist there. I absolutely think that we can look at events of today with some sort of eye towards the development of Russian thought over the centuries um, and consideration of Russia's place in the world. So for for listeners you know not familiar with what the terms slavophile and and are there what what we're talking about just breaking the kind of the root of, of yeah. the, the term slavophile so the slavs are an ethno ethnic linguistic group um poles are, are slavs Czechs are slavs um, slovaks are slavs Serbs, okay. Croats, Slovenes, um, Ukrainians, and and of course the the biggest um, group of, of Slavs is is the Russians them, themselves um, with millions of, of speakers not not only in Russia um, but also in um, neighboring states today. Um, so Slavs, that's who we're we're talking about in the the file. Um, you know the the same root as philosophy or philadelphia you know love of so the slavophiles love lovers of of the, the slavs and particularly russia and russianness slavophiles mm-hmm. of, of the 19th century said that russia's destiny lay in being more authentically russian um mm-hmm. so for the, for them that meant you know the czarist system good um the traditional agricultural, um, system, um, communal based, uh, was, was good. The Orthodox church, good. Um, their opponents in the 19th century were right. Westernizers who wanted Russia to more closely resemble Western Europe and right. the modeling of parts of Russia after Western Europe began under, um, czar Peter, the, the great, there, who moved, you know, famously the the capital of Russia from Moscow to the newly constructed. He was responsible for constructing Saint Petersburg, right, you know, on the on the right. coast, uh, the the Baltic coast, to, to physically bring Russia closer to the West. And that move, there's been debate since the time of Peter about whether Russia should be moving in the direction of Europe, trying to integrate itself as part of Europe, or if it's its own special thing with its own special character and its own destiny Mm -hmm. there that um, you know, it it should be holding on to what's unique about Russian uh life and and culture there. And I think the comparison between Putin is not not so much with with Tolstoy, but someone else you, you mentioned, um, who was this this late Slavophile or or better, um, expressed Pan-Slav author, um, Nikolai Danilevsky, who has a theory of civilizations that it's, it's not a theory of progress. It's a theory that civilizations have moments of growth, uh, and then moments of decline and ultimate decay. And Danilevsky's Mm -hmm. view was that the West was in its period of decline. And decay, and that Russia would be rising up and would play a special role in the world um, by enforcing um, the uniquely Russian parts of um, its its character and bringing those uniquely Russian aspects um, to the rest of Eastern Europe and, and Southeastern um, Europe. That was Danilevsky's vision. I think I think there's a clear overlook lap with Putin's uh, vision here where he sees Russia not as part of the West, not as part of Europe, but entirely different and sees a a mission for Russia to stand up to the West and uh, offer some alternate way of organizing political, economic, social life and using force to, to bring about that, that vision there.
1: Right. Well, and it seems it doesn't seem far-fetched to to impute um, onto Putin a, an attitude that perhaps similar to Danilevsky's that America, the hegemon of today, rather than Europe, is is entering into its period of decline, right. and perhaps this is the moment for Russia to finally take its place. To, to stand up and have its moment. So that's, that's really interesting. I think bringing Danilevsky into that discussion definitely sheds a light perhaps on how Putin thinks.
2: Yeah. Um, I think we're getting somewhat close to the end of our time here, but I wanted to ask one more question. I think we have a quick one at the end as well. You avoid offering any political prescriptions at the end of your book. And I think that that's Eminently fair. I think there's sometimes too much pressure on uh, scholars to, to to come up with a solution at the end. But for, just for fun, I want to push you on, on on that a little bit. I think, insofar as there is a lesson, it's a kind of negative one. Negative, not in bad. Negative is in the sense that we should just be more humble about what politicians um, can accomplish for their citizens or for the human race more broadly. To your to the first question, right, or you know, the ability of politicians and politics to affect that kind of lasting improvement. But I think even there, right, it's possible to draw out some implicit guidance for political actors in, say, today's liberal democracies. And what, if anything, might that guidance be? And I'm curious. There's a room if there's room there for faith in progress in politics, if only as some sort of a useful illusion, maybe something that can be tempered by, um, you know, prudent actors. And even if there isn't then what what is politics for is there any reason to participate in it at all and then maybe if you wanted to talk about sort of the relationship between optimism and hope and progress which i think comes through in your book a little bit as well maybe you'd be, maybe you'd be interested in talking about sure
0: that. yeah so that's that's a those are a good set of questions there and including uh you know the what's the point of of politics um then so uh and your use of the word hope um that is a term that two authors who appear towards the end of the book um, talk about Uh, christopher lash who was an american historian and Mm -hmm. alexander solzhenitsyn the the soviet dissident uh, russian writer who was was mentioned before both of them encourage hope of some sort while being critical of the idea of progress Um, and for them what they would say is there there's a difference between hope and expectation there. Mm. So you can hope for improvements. You can hope for betterment. Um, but this ideology, if if it can be called the ideology of progress, isn't mere hope. It's the expectation that improvement is going to come. And that's what they want to push against um the the notion that it's inevitable that Mm. the next year will be better than this one or two years down the road will be better um hoping for things from politics uh, is fine um Mm -hmm. believing that there are better forms of political arrangement and worse political you know arrangements or institutions. That's fine too, and you know so that's something we can debate and discuss, and, and that we will debate and and discuss there. I I think you're right in characterizing you know my my conclusions, or rather these authors' um, conclusions, and and saying you know it's it's somewhat of a negative conclusion in that none of the authors that I'm talking about says to put your faith in politics to bring about permanent solutions because mm-hmm. each generation is going to have its own challenges, its own problems right. there. And it becomes dangerous to give to any one political party or politician, leader, um, to to put all of your expectations on to that person or party. Um, with the expectation that they will be able to solve all of your problems there. That kind of takes away ownership from yourself um, as an individual to consider what you can do to improve your um, mm-hmm. your experience, your your life there. Um, if you if you give that much power to, any particular election there, that kind of makes you fatalistic as, as an individual here, where your Mm. prospects for success or failure hinge on the outcome of an election there. And I think any of these authors want to say, you know, that, that might not be true. Uh, every, Mm -hmm. every election of my lifetime has been portrayed as the most important election of my lifetime. Mm -hmm. There's something, you know, I would, I would say here, um, you know, wrong about that, that every election is drummed up to be this make or break, do or die moment here. I don't, I don't think that's good for democracy here. Mm. Um, you Mm -hmm. know, Democracy has its virtues, its values. It's obviously, um, you know, better than most, if not all, alternatives here. Um, but I don't think we want to be moving in a direction where we see each and every election as this black and white moment of you know, side for good will will win or 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 lose. And and you know, again, I I think the the takeaway is consider what you can do for your, your local community, what you can do for yourself, independent of, of mm-hmm. the state, independent of mm-hmm. who is in charge at any given time. Yeah. Um, it It's, you know, it's not probably not realistic to expect um, that, that all of your problems will be solved by um, someone other than than yourself here.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's a, di- that's an interesting and it's a difficult idea to process. Um, when you know you become convinced that, that particular elections are of legitimate uh, life-changing consequence. But it's an important thing, at least to attempt to struggle with, that it's, it's more complicated than that. And the last thing I have, because we've already taken much of your time, and thank you again for, for, for sitting with us and talking with us. But the last thing I have, very quickly, just to give our listeners a little takeaway. You taught Or you do teach now, maybe I I don't know which, um, a class on politics through film. And I'm curious if there's any movie that comes to your mind as being particularly worth watching for Harry and I or for our listeners um, for its interesting discussion of the idea of progress
0: one of the things the the way i ended that course the first time that i taught it is that we looked at mm-hmm. both uh utopian and dystopian films and so mm. you t- the you know the ideas of utopias and dystopias both relate uh in a way to visions of of the future of of course and and visions of the future connect to think about uh thinking about p- progress or or change more more generally there so know uh, we, we looked at Metropolis and we looked at 1984 and then um, I actually just because it was timely um, showed a movie uh, a, a Czech film actually that's not particularly well known and I can also say it's not particularly you know, it's not particularly great as a film adaptation but um, it's called the White Disease. And what you see in the film, um, you know it it makes a lot of connections to our own time of of Covid there, and you mm. see some some connections there um, that mm. kind of force you to to think about again, just how many of the problems that we're experiencing now are kind of timeless in a way. Other right. people, other societies. Different parts of the world have had to deal with similar issues before, which, you know, again, connecting to the idea of progress. What does it mean that, oh, man, some of these same things um, that we're having a problem with, others had to deal with? Um, as as well so you know i i, mm-hmm. I don't want to be that n- negative nelly uh you know <laughs> saying g- give up on on everything and, and i don't f- think that's the the point or, or the uh, purpose right. of, of the book or what any of the right. authors that i talk about would would say you know um you know notably they they all kept on living as long as they could and uh, you know kept on writing <laughs> and kept on having interests through through their lives they didn't right. become you know totally divorced from from the world there um but i I think those those films you know are are worth looking at and and considering their you know metropolis and um the the film adaptations and there have been various ones of, of 1984 and then um if you want to get a kick out of something that is you know again it's it's not super strong in in terms of art artistic merit. Um but but the white disease, um, which mm. you can find on, mm. on YouTube, I think. Um, you know, you'll you'll you would make some some connections to our own um time.
2: Yeah. Well actually I was just reading on that note, I was reading a book that's much drier, um, A History of Global Trade and then talking about the economy of Europe after the end of the Black Death and how Um, all these workers' wages started going up and then there was inflation. Uh, And it uh, (laughs) reminded me that that maybe things don't ever change. Um, So that's a little bleak, but um, uh, uh, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. The book for our listeners is A Road to Nowhere, The Idea of Progress and Its Critics. Um, It's quite accessible, not too long. If you're interested in in, um, being exposed to a a diverse range of thinkers, some of whom you've probably heard about, many of whom you have never heard about, I'm sure. Um uh it's for you. Um so I, I would recommend it. Um, it's linked in our
1: show notes. Linked by in our the way. show notes,
2: that's right. Um so thank you so much for coming on, Professor. Um and thank you
0: yeah. both. This this was fun. So
1: well good, it was fun for us as well. It was lovely to have you. Hey, we need your help, and it'll only take ten seconds. Our dream is to build a home for the stories that matter for democracy. But to keep that dream alive, we need to grow this community. So if you've been enjoying spectacles or you learned something from this episode, please consider sharing it. It's super easy. All you need to do is click one of the links in the show notes to share this episode via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or email. Thanks for your help and thanks for listening.